the um, series of classes uh, for the next, four, uh, including this week, four weeks, will be on uh, wise speech. And uh, it was um, suggested to me by <clears throat> someone who just uh, felt like that was the one aspect of uh, this person's behavior, which uh, she just didn't seem to have a good handle on. And so I said, okay, well, we'll explore it. But we've got to understand that um, speech is a lifetime practice. And so uh, it's extremely important um, for this uh, gathering, for us, that we uh, use the time in between classes to really focus in on our speaking and how we speak. Uh, and if we really do it right, there'll be a lot of insight that accompanies this month. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, what I plan on doing is instead of just me talking, which is what I'm going to do tonight, but for the rest of the classes, I'll talk a little bit, sort of prod it, stir it up a little bit, and then turn it over to you all. And uh, we'll have classes where um, there'll be small group discussions about how the homework went. There'll be, uh, maybe we'll break up into dyads and you'll talk to each other, and you'll talk about somebody perhaps who you don't like, and the other person will listen to how you talk about that person and reflect back what they hear, and then we'll switch. So hopefully it'll be a, a more practical methods course than, um, than just coming and listening and then going out. <clears throat> but tonight, just to get us going on this whole thing, I thought we could, uh, we'll have a lecture and then question and answer. It's pretty much the usual format. So uh, th this course uh, is on uh, wise speech. But in order to talk about wise speech, you have to really explore unwise speech. Now, when I approach that subject, it's not the same as politically correct speech. <laughs> uh, I was listening to a NPR report on politically correct speech and it was um, they're going around and interviewing students, university students at one of these universities that were very 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 politically correct <laughs> and uh, there was the, the, the questionnaire, the interviewer, would ask these students who were in groups to express an opinion about something that was controversial. Like, do you believe that, I mean, they weren't, it wasn't real controversial. It was like, do you believe that, in general, males are stronger than females? And nobody would answer. <laughs> because, and when they got them, separated them out individually, they said, well, I, ju I you just can't do that anymore. You just can't have that kind of opinion because you immediately get labeled. And, um, and I thought, my God, you know, what's the purpose here of speech? Is 
is everything, even something that can be um, objectively seen, but because it says something about one gender or type of person as opposed to another, you can't say it, even though it's true. It doesn't have to be prejudiced. You don't have to have behind it a sense that we're better than for a fact to be a fact. And if the, if the university students can't say facts, well, I mean, my God, we're missing something. So, but we're not going to get into all that. Maybe we'll get into it a little bit. <coughs> uh, maybe I'll get into it a little bit to stir you up. Because <laughs> 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 nothing will do it to you like that. <laughs> but anyway, so we'll, we'll just talk about communication. And, <clears throat> and actually, um, I want to start with a, a story. As was told to me by one of you, probably. I can't quite remember. But I remember I told the person when they told me that I was going to say it in the class. And they said, oh, I'll be there. So <laughs> it was a story about um, a, a disciple and his teacher. <clears throat> and um, the disciple goes to his teacher and says, uh, teach me about uh, the power of words. And so this teacher gives the student um, a bag of feathers and directs him up to the top of the mountain where there's a wind and a high mountain. He says, go, go up to the mountain and dump the feathers out. So the man hikes up to the top of the mountain and dumps the feathers. And of course, the feathers get blown all over. And then the man comes back down and says, well, I did that. And he says, now go back up and collect them. <laughs> And that, in effect, is the power of the word. The power of the word. That once they're out there, they're unretrievable. You can apologize for them. You can say, I'm sorry. You can do penance. But they're out there. And the damage has, in fact, been done. And the trust is shaken, right? On a single word, the trust can be shaken. Almost irretrievably shaken. Unretrievably sh shaken. <clears throat> so we really have to understand the power of the word. I uh, was very interested in our hospice uh, unit, our hospice program, um, learning music and the value of music to people who are dying. So we found a woman, um, an exceptional woman. She lives over on Bainbridge Island and who's a musicologist and um, who uh, taught our staff the value of music and showed how different types of music have different effects on people. As a matter of fact, and this really impressed me, because I didn't really understand the power of sound, the power of that. But she showed a videotape in which uh, just they would have these sand uh, displays, and then, just, then they would play loud music directed at the sand. And the sand would go into these enormously complicated patterns on a certain type of music, a certain vibration, and they change the vibration in the music 
and the sand would change to a different type of pattern, beautiful patterns. And one time they played a type of music and the patterns of the sand turned into a dragonfly. And I thought, wait a second here. Maybe that is the fa how we take shape. Maybe the shape of who we are has something to do with the vibratory quality of all the energies and sounds and things around us. And maybe our inward vibration as well. I mean, if we just take ourselves a little bit outside of the realm of scientific possibilities, maybe there's something going on there cosmically like that that has us in a particular shape given certain... And it was interesting because she had a, um, a mattress where um, we lied down, and I, I, I did, I, I laid down on this mattress, and she put certain uh, chords like a C, the, uh, C or A or B or D, and she would play music that had that uh, resonance. And uh, she said, well, you know, um, and I can't quite re I think D, I think D resonates higher up in the body and the lower, like A resonates lower, corresponding to the different chakras and things. But, so I had a bad back. My back, lower back was hurting and she says, I'll play you the chord of C or something like that. And she put on music that had, in the mattress had speakers all over it. And it was right in the, you know, and I was like laying there feeling my back get better from the sound of the music. I mean, the extraordinary power of sound. See, it's real interesting because she's very interested in the power of music. She's gone into it with enormous depth and understanding. And she's just, un just unfurled enormous um, research and value in this. She goes off to India. Her name's Pat Cook, by the way. She goes off to India and um, she spent six months with the people in Benares who were dying and the types of music that they play, they wouldn't take any medicines. They don't have that kind of um, resource. They don't have medicinal resources over there. So they go over there and play music to them. And she um, very infrequently found people in pain. Occasionally, but not, not, not often. Which is really um, an enormous... Um. So anyway, the, just the the power of sound itself. I think, you know, what we're talking about in speech, of course, is, is configuring sound in a certain way so that it addresses communication. But the sound itself, just the power of sound itself, in Sanskrit, of course, is the ancient um, Indian language that is based on just the sound of the language. And I was going to actually play some Sanskrit music so you could hear the resonance of that. Maybe I will in a weeks to come. And it's just based on the tones of the word. Um, and it resonates in different, uh, to open different centers within ourselves. So all of this is just as a way of introducing uh, the power of, of, the, of the spoken word. And, and the need that we should begin to feel, 
to take responsibility for that. To take responsibility for that spoken word. I mean, we, um, we sort of go off in our own secret corners and allow speech to tell the inward story of our thoughts. And uh, those stories are often stories of desperation, of loneliness. Uh, and often there are stories of, of that sort of um, feeling of isolation and, and uh, being cut off from things. And so what we try to do to connect with other people is to exploit through sound an avenue which will allow us to be seen as, as bigger than, than we think we are. So we gossip, for instance. Or, or we exaggerate. You see? And if you could just trace that sound back to the inward poverty of where that sound is coming from, the pain behind it. And we'll be exploring that. But you can't really isolate speech. I mean, you can't really say, okay, I'm only going to focus on speech and none of my actions or other things count. I mean, it's a little bit like only focusing on the mouth of a charging lion, forgetting about his claws and everything else. That, in fact, you know, we're a whole person. We're more than just speech. We're action and thought, emotion. And all of these things really do intertwine together in terms of our communication. But it's useful, I think, to focus for this period of time, for this month, On, on speaking. You know, the, the interesting thing, and I think something that's very obvious, but um, I don't think we really explore what it means, is that uh, speech is always done with someone else, or usually. I mean, you can do a soliloquy, or <laughs> speak to yourself, I guess. Uh, but it's usually one of the hardest behaviors to be co control because it is through others that we discover ourselves. It's through others that we're trying to paint a picture of ourselves. You see, through our speaking. And most, or, or much, of uh, a lot of... of um, of speaking has that at its root, its intention. Either some sort of sense of self-discovery or self-projection. Right? You see that? Conversation can really, at one way, can be the art of self-discovery. You can watch the impact that you have on another person and just how you speak. You know, I, I grew up in a family, a very blunt family, very, very blunt. Um, and, um, and so I just, uh, I just took that form of speech on myself. 
And um, I still, to this day, see people cringe, you know, and just I'll just say something. The intention isn't to hurt or to be harsh, but that's, that's the impact it has. And so, you know, some people say, well, you just have to stop at the intention. You know, just be aware of your intention, and that's good enough. But I don't think that's good enough, you see? My, my intention is not to hurt you, but I'm hurting you. But there's some reaction going on there. I need to find out what it is that I'm doing beyond what my intentions are to see why it is that there's an impact. I'm having the impact I'm having. And oftentimes, it's just some sense of, um, of insensitivity in oneself or just not really tuning in to the power of the word, the power of what you're saying and the way it's said. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm the director of a hospice program and oftentimes I don't look at myself in that position. I just, you know, I just look at myself as sitting around the table and my job is different than other people's jobs, but not, but I, I have, and so I'll say something and it'll be taken, you know, be really sh it'll shake somebody, and it'll, but somebody else will say it another clinician and it won't it won't have carry the same impact but it's because of the position I'm in it carries a certain impact just because of the position and you have to be aware of that you know that's part of the sensitivity of being alive is seeing is seeing that seeing that role I mean you're a parent and you talk to your kid in a certain way that's not just one equal talking to another but this huge human being all-powerful in relationship to the small child carries a different force, a different impact, no matter what the intention is. So we have to, we have to move, we can't just, we can't just color everything, you know. There aren't any um, easy answers in Dharma practice. They so say, oh, all I have to do is be aware of my intention. Uh, that's, not, that's not quite it. It's more than that. So, rightly or wrongly, other people interpret our character through our words. And our words are develop the relationship with that other person. Right? When two lovers are together and they're talking very intimately that so much of that is communicated through the speech, the intimacy of the speech. And, the, and there's a, uh, a vulnerability. So you see, the words can take us to the edge of our own vulnerability, to the edge of, of our own sense of uh, protection and fear, and can entice and allure, um, and can be so easily manipulated. And to open up like that usually means that the other is also opening up. And if the intention, and this is where intention does, I mean, if the intention is to use that vulnerability in some way to produce harm, or to cause harm, or to turn it back on the other person, you see, there's, all, there's an enormous range of potential harm in speech 
because it can draw the other person out because it's the art of relationship. It's where that other person's heart really gets engaged and wants to come out. And through speech, you can bring that other person out and then you can crush them. You can crush them. You know, I'm often amazed um, at the quality of the person that comes to hospice work. They're good in general. <laughs> it's right speech, politically correct. <laughs> in general, people who come to hospice work <laughs> really are very caring people. And, you know, if they weren't like that, I don't think there's a, a, uh, another time except perhaps when two people are, are in love, just starting that love relationship, that, um, that there's that kind of vulnerability. Uh, when somebody is dying and needs desperately your help and you're meeting them in that relationship with words. Uh, and very, very infrequently has it ever, um, has it ever turned into manipulation and harm. Very, very, very infrequently. And uh, I, just, I just think that, um, that people who are drawn to, and same thing, people who are drawn to meditation, same, same kind of quality people, they're looking for something different than the hurt. They're just, they're not as interested in doing, using the world in that way anymore. Thank God, because in meditation you learn how to hurt. If you learn how to heal, you also learn how to harm. And you develop a sensitivity where you know where that person's vulnerability is. I mean, when I do a meditation class or course, and people come up and interview, and I know exactly where that person's vulnerable spots are. You just feel it in them. And you can just go in there and cause all kinds of damage if there weren't some sense of being accountable for your speech, accountable to your, to your actions. So this is um, an extremely important topic, I think for all of us to really get a deep sense of, of its importance. So, why, why do we even speak? What is it that we get out of it? What are some of the reasons that we, uh, that we talk, that we speak? <clears throat> And as I mentioned before, so much of our speech has to do with being lonely. You know, I, I, I spent the weekend um, in Portland with a friend of mine who, uh, same age, I've known him since I was three years old, known him for um, 46 years. And um, I was best man in his wedding, and, um, and then we went separate ways. He became a... Um, a marine fighter pilot and an FBI agent. <laughs> this is true. And uh, he was uh, showing me what his life has been about because I haven't really connected with him for a number of years. And he, he said, you know, and he has leukemia. He has um, CLL, 
about his blood count was for those of you who know such things, uh, 300,000 white cells were 300,000. So he's dying, essentially. The doctor says that he's got um, six months to a year to live. He's on some chemotherapy. Uh, and um, he's re-looking at his life. And, and he's trying to find meaning in it, you know. So he brings out uh, this machine gun. And um, he says, this is going to be, this is what uh, I'm going to be remembered for. Because he's, now the FBI is using this machine gun. He's tested and did a lot of specifications on I don't know what you do with a machine gun, but somehow he got the machine gun to be used by the FBI. And he's very proud of that. Now, I could have killed that man. <laughs> Dharmically, I mean, I could have gone at him a thousand different ways. But I said, damn it, you know, John, good job. You know? There's a time when you set that rest of that stuff aside and you connect with that man's humanity. And, I mean, he listens to Rush Limbaugh. So we listen to Rush Limbaugh together. <laughs> you know, talk about uh, speech. <laughs> Man, I've never really listened to him before. God almighty. Angry anger. Just ah, ah, blaming him. So he said, well, what, what do you think of him? You know? <laughs> So I said, you know, he sounds like he's uh, lost in cynicism, John. And then, so we explore. I didn't say, you know, he should, you know, liberalism and all this kind of stuff. But we talked about cynicism because I noticed when I was with him that he was very, um, he was getting very cynical. You know, it was like this problem and that problem and then the government is this. I mean, he could be on, he could be in... Uh, the Freeman out there in Montana or wherever those guys are. So I said, you know, John, you're, you're ill and you've got to look at your legacy here. How do you want to be remembered on this earth? With your cynicism? I mean, what's, what's going to be your parting gift to your family? No matter how long. Hopefully you'll recover and maybe you'll even get, go into remission. But that legacy is something that is an ongoing legacy. That's something that we're going to have for the rest of our lives now. And know however long our lives are. Do you want to just be cynical? Be angry? Is that how you want to die? Is that how any of us want to die? You see, begin to see that speech is really a manifestation of our heart. We can't be dharmic for two hours on Monday and backbiting, gossiping, angry, resentful people the rest of the week and think we're on some spiritual path, for God's sake. Our speech is, one, if you want to know where you are in this whole thing, look at how we speak. Look at it and own it and let's take responsibility for it and let's go into it and it's a great indicator you know it's like the old applause meter 
boom, it shows you right where the needle's pointing. <laughs> so we just look at it. And you get caught up in all, it's not to say that there's some kind of self-righteous and guilt and shame and all this because we get caught up in all that. I was getting caught up in all this stuff over the weekend. I mean, I, he would start talking about the government. i said, yeah, the government, you know, and he'd go, oh, what am I saying? My God. <laughs> you know, so, but it's easy to do. You know, you just get caught up in this whole, and, 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 and the, the paintbrush, you know, the easy answer to life, this black and white, so they're bad, and these are, you know, you can just, pew. it's so easy to do that because your mind loves to lump things like that. Say, so, yes. But, you know, one thing in our in communication we established with uh, ourselves and was that there aren't, you know, these things just aren't easy answers. There aren't, it's, it's not simplistic. You can't blame this. Why do we speak, you know? Have been, how, how many of you have been on a retreat when you've come off the retreat the, um, out of that silence? And so you're with somebody and, you know, you're supposed to say something, right? I mean, they're there and your silence has been broken. And it can be such an awkward moment or a long period of time where you don't feel like talking because you don't feel like coming out of that silence and yet you're with other people who are talking and um, and if you go this way you feel like you're being you know antisocial or something and and yet if you try to pretend that you want to talk it doesn't come out right and so the whole thing can be very awkward but th there's something really beautiful in that in that moment in the quietude and in the communication in the quietude, in the talking, in the speaking, in the conversing, in the communicating, commune, 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 communion. The sharing of that. Words, the Buddha said, speak with a friendly heart. He didn't say an awful lot about it except speak with a friendly heart. Speak from caring, concern. The world's crying out for, I mean, just listen to our political leaders. Where, where is there any decency in that? <clears throat> I don't care what party we're from. The world's crying out for, for some tenderness at speech. <clears throat> and it doesn't have to be a self-conscious tenderness. That's, that's as bad as the other side of the where, you know, you felt it, I, I certainly have, where somebody is playing, you know, that kind of sensitive role, all that stuff, you know, the new age man. <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the willingness to follow our speech inward and to really look at it, to look at why it is that we're speaking. You know, emotions, so we're just speaking out of the emotion, reacting out of the emotion, and so it just, just ignites our speech in the direction and force of the emotion. 
fear, anger, whatever. So it be, just becomes a... I mean, that's a hard one to stop, right? You, you say something, you get feeling a certain self-righteousness and you say something and you can't bring it back. So somebody passes you on the street and in a very nice way says, uh, Good morning, Rodney. And you say, uh, Do you have to say that in the morning? I, I'm not feeling like it's a good morning. You just go your way and I'll go mine. You leave me alone, you know? Just, and you go, Oh my God, what happened there? You see? That happened. And you go, Jeez. Well, she deserved it. <laughs> I mean, she's always saying good morning, for God's sake. <laughs> So you can just brush it aside, rationalize it, because that's, you know. And I go my way, I don't care whether she likes me or not. Who's she anyway? See, the, whole, the mind just And that's inward speech. And we're gonna talk about inward speech, thinking, self-reflecting, how it is that we treat ourselves with inward thoughts. That's speech. It's an important aspect of speech. We're speaking to substantiate ourselves, to expound upon ourselves. Oh man, someone once said, never tell anyone your problems because half the people don't care and the other half are glad you got what you deserved. <laughs> but people who just sort of, um, you know, all, all, all energy just goes towards to need to be fed. Or they just want, they can't stop talking about themselves. And everything they, they just, uh, everything is a comment laced with I and me. And that you can just feel like a machine trying to generate some kind of respect and dignity and worth, self-worth, through the avenue of speech by constantly having portraying themselves through their talk. They keep, they keep making verbal images of themselves as, and putting them forth, you see, because they can't face or can't put up with the image that's there. But we really um, can't talk about speech without also talking about listening because there really isn't any communication. It's like the, the receptacle. And um, it's the yin and the yang. It's the active and then the passive. And those two have to go hand in hand. And I think it's just interesting. I mean, this week as we're talking about speaking, also be very aware of how you listen. So do we just listen waiting to speak? So, now that's an interesting one. Just play with that one for a while. I mean, okay, I'll give this person their time, not even caring what they're really saying, but then as soon as it's over, then now it's my turn. You see, now this is what's really important. <laughs> you see? Or are we listening in a way that really allows that wholeness 
of the yin and the yang. The speaking speaker and the listener. The giver and the receiver. Because it's not a union unless that whole thing is there. And how do we listen? So I, I find myself listening uh, kind of critically to people. You see, sort of judging what they're saying, how they're saying it, whether they're deviating from the truth. You know, you can just, aha, yeah. <laughs> Are you sort of leaning into the listener? You know, waiting for them to say something that uh, you can sort of pounce on in a, with a, in a critical way. So that's interesting. So, so how is it that we listen? Do we just listen? Let the person deliver and we're just sitting, just listening? Or is it with some expectation or maneuvering around? Speech is our psychic posture to the world. It's not a, uh, a small statement. It's really the beginning manifestation of action is in our speech. As long as it's a thought, the internal speak, once that thought becomes crystallized and is grabbed hold of and identified with and believed in, then what comes out in language is your belief system, is your, your sense of psychic posture, where you stand, where we stand in the world. And the funny thing about it is that we read people with some degree of sensitivity and it does not much. I mean, most of us read pretty well what other pe where other people are, irrespective of their words. We get a good sense of that person. And here's the person trying to present their image through their speech that offsets what they know they are. And we're seeing right through all this garbage that's coming out, you know, to really what's behind it. I mean, many of us are. I mean, it's, we're not very, we're not, I mean, it's not too easy. Uh, I mean, it's pretty easy to see through a lot of this stuff. And yet, you know, what I always see, or what I sometimes see, is uh, the pain from which it comes from. And then, you know, the garbage is okay. You know, all of this process and the way we do it, it's really... It's just okay. It's not harmful when it's seen in the right way. And the person's broken. Most of us are broken in a certain way. And we try to fix it through our speech. We try to repair the image through our speech. We, pr we try to repair the image through our exaggeration, through our, our projection of image, through our expounding upon ourselves. See, speech is an avenue that we can be more than what we feel we are. We can be a reality. We can project a reality away from the diminished reality that we feel internally. 
You know, I can create any reality to you. I can tell you anything. I've done anything. I can tell you I've, you know, I'm a Harvard graduate from da-da-da-da. Yeah? <laughs> or I can, you know, I can say anything, you see? I can, I can create it all, my own reality, and I can perhaps fool you for a little while. And maybe that's good enough for me to give me some relief from my own sense of self-disdain. See, I mean, when we realize that so much of our behavior comes out of our pain, then it's not for us to criticize somebody's behavior so much. It's to really understand the pain and give the person permission to expose the pain rather than to cover it up. And that's what listening does. Real listening. I mean, if we're just feeding the projection, then we're not really listening and we're just feeding the, the fiction, the image. But if we're really listening, that's why, you know, they've done, a, they've done studies on, on counselors, psychologists, or psychiatrists who really are very good. And over a period of time, the growth occurs not from the responses necessarily that the psychologist gives, but from their ability to accommodate all that is being displayed and talked about. And the person just starts generating images that don't go anywhere, and then finally they come to their own pain. And since, and then, since that isn't, um, isn't negated or, or criticized or judged, then they can, they can come out. They can come out and peek out a little bit. Pardon? I don't know. <laughs> I can I can find out for you though. I'd be happy to do that. So I, I um, just to close a, a little bit because this is what I want us to carry with us this next week uh, is uh, exaggerating our need to exaggerate and our need to lie. Not our need to lie, but our li the lying that does occur. The distortion of truth. I'd like us to spend this week looking at our speech in terms of exaggeration or extort, uh, 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 distorting the truth. Now, you see, when we exaggerate, Uh, we're trying to give ourselves some sense of uh, self-importance, right? I mean, I, I didn't catch, I caught a big fish. So I'm a big person, right? Right? Big fish, big person. <laughs> little fish, little person. <laughs> you know, and so we, we embellish the stories to be interesting so that people will be, have interest in us, so that we'll get the attention that we, what we need. And it's interesting because we can give ourselves that same attention. I mean, we always have the ability to give ourselves that healing quality through our awareness. 
That's what meditation is. And that's why meditation heals. But usually we don't trust that because we don't trust ourselves. So we go out and look for other people's. But then we don't trust them either because we don't really, we know we're lying to them. So if they believe our exaggerations, we don't trust them because we know they're believing in a falsehood. You see? So they may like us, but we don't trust the affection because it's based on a lie. So it's just, it never works. It doesn't work. So you gotta, we always got to come back home on this thing. Boom, back home. Raw wood, stripped all the paint off. Here we go. So we want to look this week at our embellishment, our lying. Lying is kind of an exaggeration gone haywire. When I was, uh, <laughs> when I was um, growing up, um, I kind of learned to survive through lying. And I didn't have any problem with it. I, mean, I just wouldn't tell the truth. And it is amazing how the conditioning of the childhood years continues into the adult. You know, you s start saying something and, and that's not true. You know, just <laughs> think, what are you saying that for? And it's just like your mouth is just running off. You know, I think I could pass any lie detector. Because as a youth, I learned that it wasn't, you know, I was just, you know, I just lied. And it didn't, I don't think the thing ever moved. You know, my heart <laughs> So that you, but, but, you know, for the last 30 years, I've, um, I've really uh, taken stock of that. But still, you, you know, the, there's this kind of creeping thing where you just start embellishing the truth a little bit. And then you have to go, oh, come on, come on back here. Okay. <laughs> you know, and it's like... <laughs> The story just doesn't really ring true, so you keep, you just have to keep bringing it back home. I hope I'm giving people, through my own examples, a sense that this is not a, um, well, we just have to approach it with a, a lightheartedness here. I mean, if we're going to get down on ourselves, we're going to have a hell of a week. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to be light here. And you know that story I tell a lot about the lie notebook that I used to teach until I was caught in my lie. Um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.